A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. Hello, this is Rose Mercier in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Rose, for introducing this edition of the Tennis Podcast. Catherine, Matt and myself, David Law, are here to answer your questions today because it's Thursday. We wanted a podcast. We've only answered about five or six in every other previous Listener Questions podcast, so we've still got loads and loads to get through. Plus, about another 150 came in with Matt just putting out a single tweet. Uh, So how are you doing both, Matt? You all right? Fine, thank you. Yes, busy wading through all those questions, but that has that has been completed, and we are ready to get going. Ready, ready to rock, and we'll have to rock because one of them's about entrance music, Catherine, for us to come into. Can't wait for that one. No, no spoilers. <laughs> How are you today? All right. I'm all right. I, I've my uh, I've worn uh, I've put I've popped a cardigan over over my dressing gown to try and disguise the fact that I am not dressed but it's I'm I'm looking at myself in the in the camera and I'm realizing it's it's a flimsy disguise isn't it fooled me did it oh okay I needn't have mentioned anything <laughs> 28 seconds ago it's pre, I thought, oh, it's pre midday so um you know lockdown yeah. and everything Okay, so little insight there, folks. Uh, <laughs> stuff we didn't even know. We both thought Catherine had dressed up for the occasion, but apparently not. This is our earliest record of lockdown, I think. It is. It is. It's a bit early, isn't it? Crikey, yeah. It's 10.30 in the morning, folks. That, that, that doesn't exist on Catherine's clock. She's had to borrow one. Um, so, right, questions. We are going to get cracking immediately. Matt, what have we got? First up, we're going to Shari B., on Instagram, who asks, probably in response to our pod on Monday when we touched on this topic, how can we make tennis more enjoyable without an audience? Oh, that is a big ask, isn't it? It's probably something we should all be thinking about, though, isn't it? Rather than, I mean, you know, we said on the last pod that we all have our reservations about uh, tennis behind closed doors, without a crowd, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's a very real prospect. Um I, I've done a, a couple of interviews in in the in the last couple of days. One with uh, Sergi Bruguera, one with Michael Chang. You'll be hearing bits of them over the over the coming weeks. And we we touched on lots of topics, but I asked them both how they felt about tennis behind closed doors, and their 
opinions could not have been more polarized. <laughs> Sergi uh, said, yep, yeah, I'm absolutely all for it. Just bring tennis back as soon as possible. No matter what you have to do, just bring it back. He sounded <laughs> almost panicked. He said, bring football back, bring tennis back. I need to watch Barcelona as a matter of urgency. <laughs> I need tennis to return. And, you know, when he first answered the question, he was he was definitely talking about it from a, a spectator's perspective. And I said, what about a, what about as a player though? <laughs> Would it imagine playing a French open final with, with no crowds? And still he said, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> Just bring it back. Um, I put the same question to Michael Chang and uh, he said um, the opposite. He said, no, I, I, I just can't envisage it. It's, it's, uh, it's too weird. Um, I can't really get get my head around it. Um, so there is going to be a, a massive divide in the tennis community if and when the first actual, you know, tour level event gets gets announced that it's going ahead. Um, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of debate flying around. So we're getting in there. We're getting in there early. I wondered if I, I, I covered a Champions Tour event in, I think, 2008 in Istanbul in July. It was my first one flying solo. And uh, Istanbul in July, it, it was about 45 degrees. I'm not sure why they decided that was where it should be in the calendar. But anyway, it was too hot to be outside, let alone sit for a prolonged period watching sports. So there was just nobody in the crowd, nobody whatsoever. Um, so they pumped crowd noise in. <laughs> and um, it was weird. Of course it was weird, but maybe it helped a little bit. I don't know. It's like watching they've been doing the um the Graham Norton show haven't they with him from his from his house with a little sort of mini studio set up and he still does his little comedy bits in between guests and what he's saying is funny and he's still the same guy he's still as charming and funny as ever but hearing those jokes land without any crowd response is really really painful it puts a completely different complexion on it. And I'm sort of finding myself, I can't believe I'm saying this because I've spent 15 years talking about how canned laughter was the only bad thing about um, I'm Alan Partridge. But it, I, it makes me sort of cry out for some canned laughter. I don't know. What, what, is, this, what is this pandemic doing to me? <laughs> so this is going to be like sport office style isn't it? Mm. Where great things happen to utter silence. And that's going to be a bit jarring. Um, or I think there's two things. One, I think it'll be interesting to see whether we adjust as viewers. It is a different world. Let's assume it's a different world for a long time. And we just have to kind of get used to it. And we can't do what we used to do anymore. John Mackinnon used to fly on a Concorde to London every so often. He can't do that anymore. He has to go on a on another plane. Oh yeah, that's the same. <laughs> no, I know, but you know there are certain things that die out. Or John, you can't John's do anymore. struggle is real. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it is still only sport, isn't it? So maybe you no, just adjust for the love of the game. That doesn't. You can't flippantly say at a time when you know we've all discussed and 
made heartfelt, uh, given heartfelt accounts of why it's not just sport. Come on. You can't flippantly no, say. I wonder whether we'll find something else within the sport other than just the sound. The I, I, Look, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm wondering whether, whether I will watch the sport in a different way. I think your other senses will become more attuned. Yeah, possibly. I may, or I may or I may fall out of love with it. That's also possible. I think ultimately the fact that it isn't just sport is actually the strongest argument to bring it back without fans because it's what players need for their livelihood. So if they if if there's a way to get the tour back up and running and get the economics of it back up and running without fans, that is going to be more important, I think, than the consideration of whether fans are in the stadium or not. If if we're going to be able to give these players a chance to play with prize money and all that kind of thing, then they need to take that opportunity. It's going to be weird, but we're going to have to accept that. I think I think that's more. I think that's a more important consideration than whether it's a bit weird or not for fans. Um, but, but they are those two things are are intertwined, aren't they? Because the economics of it a big chunk of that very dependent on fans yeah exactly and 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 tv broadcast interest um and all the rest of it i do think it will perhaps be slightly uh more viable less weird indoor events where you're able to to black out the seats i mean that vision the visual of empty seats i think um i mean at events which are poorly attended that always doesn't feel right it always kind of takes you out of the of the moment a little bit so I, I think there's a bit of an advantage maybe for for indoor events in that regard you can sort of create a bit of bit of atmos with with lighting am i clutching i don't know i mean that's the thing we've all seen and been to tennis events which have been poorly attended like i'm sure we've all sat on a court where there was probably only 10 or 12 of us in the stadium and it's felt weird and felt like oh I don't want to watch this really but you get through it I think the I think the problem <laughs> we will endure <laughs> well, exactly I think it's going to be something we have to just put up with kind of I think I think you do adjust I've commentated on it I think the problem is we talked about on Monday I can't imagine slams without fans I think once you get to such a high level it becomes more difficult, but those are the events which are going to provide players with more opportunities exactly. to play. Exactly, those are the ones that are most likely to, to yeah. go ahead. Maybe not in the first instance. I assume they'll sort of try it at a low level for sort of guinea pig purposes. But if the argument is you just need to get back tennis back up and running to, um, to, to quote our fearless leader, get the economy moving, get the tennis economy moving, then, you know, the stakes are highest for that at slams. There's the biggest biggest payoff at the slams um yeah it it is so hard to imagine a grand slam final with with no crowd it's it's i think there's a couple of things though one is a little like how i feel we're adjusting to life at the moment with slightly different expectations of it and, and appreciating simpler things uh not going out not spending money not but I'm more easily pleased by not very much, quite honestly. And and I I wonder whether that may be how the viewing public looks at this. Is if you've if you've kind of lost everything, if you get some of it back, just that little chance to enjoy enjoy it again. Okay, well that'll do. You know, I'm all right with that. 
Um, one of the other questions we did have, I don't think it's on our list, but is is whether whether those sort of tournaments would have an asterisk next to them for for the for the winner. I mean, for me, as, as long as everybody can play, I, I think it's it's it is what it is. Um, but the other one is, I just feel like it'll be interesting to see what tournaments do to try to combat this weirdness because some of the some of the tournament promoters are really innovative and have got great imaginations for how to make something a great viewing experience and i can't think in this age when you think of the special effects that you can get in films and in games and all these sort of things now again it would take a bit of a mind adjustment from us as a viewers but maybe they can come up with something maybe even interactive on the screen that could could transmit what you're feeling as a viewer on tv onto what you're what's in the stadium a, oh, a, holo- a hologram crowd like you have hologram prince concerts yeah maybe you could press a button one to ten about how excited you are at the australian at the open the a couple of years ago in the uh, in the sponsor village um the one of the the banking sponsors ANZ had this like indoor booth thing where you could go in and play air guitar with a hologram of country singer Keith Urban <laughs> and it was uh, it was the single weirdest thing i've ever seen i think and uh, Novak Djokovic was sponsored by ANZ at the time and um, it was when I was working for Tennis Australia and had to troop down there to um, to film him air guitaring with um, country singer Keith Urban. Not the real one, a hologram. Holograms are weird, is my conclusion. Virtual reality. I don't know. Maybe there's something out there that can be done. We will find out. Um, will it's going to be would, weird, would you, it, no matter what. Would you have music at the change of ends? Would you have Sweet Caroline <laughs> playing at the change of ends if there's nobody to sway and sing along with it? Yeah, I'd have a brilliant piss-taking DJ who just made fun of the whole situation. <laughs> what what would you what would you have? Nobody speak. You could create a whole uh, a whole playlist. Exactly. She's not there. <laughs> oh, I, I found my I found my vibe. What about headset coaching every change of ends? Ooh, that's great. Or does that delegitimize it as an event? No, I, li- I like that. Yeah, but we like the idea of headset coaching anyway. I don't, don't yeah. particularly. So, but as David know. says, it's it, it's going to call for some massive innovation. Mm. And actually, that's that's not that massive innovation because it has, it has been seen. And there is a sort of precedent for it. It will be interesting to see what happens if the Australian Open manages to run the tournament and if for some reason they couldn't have fans, how they did it, because they are seriously innovative, aren't they? But I also think that they they might be able to make it work with, with an amount of fans anyway. We'll see. Mm. Matt, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that Catherine's story about pumping about pumping crowd noise into the stadium always reminds me of the conspiracy theory that uh, at the golf at, at the masters they play bird noises over the like on the tv broadcast to make it sound more sort of 
at one with nature than it actually is. Like when you're on the ground necessarily at the Masters, you can't necessarily hear all those noises. But when you're watching it on the TV, they sort of play them in and make it sound sort of magical and that's entice you to go. That's a terrible scandal. That's like... Um, I don't know whether the, that's been It's like the smell of Subway being fake. They pump out a manufactured yes. smell of sandwiches. People always tell you to brew coffee when you're selling your house. Apparently that gets people going. Coffee and bread, um, I think. Bread, yeah. Is it? Um, and finally, we found a use for that awful goal music when someone scores a goal. And uh, rather than hearing <laughs> the crowd, you hear some rubbish music <laughs> played way too loud so that you can't hear the crowd. Yeah, shame on QPR. They do that. <laughs> <laughs> Any chance um, to take a dig? Dancing on my own. I'm just, I'm, I'm riffing now. <laughs> What sort of uh, DJ music do you want played to sum up the situation? That's your challenge at Tennis Podcast. Let us know. Uh, Catherine will be thinking about that for the remainder of the day. Just the two uh, of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Right. We've had 18 minutes on that. Matt, have we got time for another question? <laughs> um, sticking with topical questions before we dive into some other ones. Um We've had a lot of questions about Innis Ibu's response to Dominic Team's comments about not wanting to be part of the scheme to give his prize money, his his uh, money to lower ranked tennis players. Uh, this is Innis Ibu, the Algerian player who produced a video. It was advertised as my as like an open letter to Dominic Team as a response, but in the in the style of a video and. Um, yeah, our our reaction to that basically is what people want to want to know. Well, first of all, it was brilliantly produced. Well done, her and whoever put that together with her. It was very powerful, very slick, and yeah, it got the message across that her circumstances are very different to maybe those that Dominic Team started his career with, and and that many players of his situation may have found themselves in when they were trying to make their way in terms of the resources available to them, the the kind of uh, courts that they can play on, the facilities they might have to use and the ability to travel around the world. And she was making the point very powerfully, impressively, I thought, about the trials and tribulations of somebody in her situation and what the coronavirus and it, and the lack of tennis as a result means to her. Um, yeah, I, my my immediate reaction was... I feel a bit sorry for him that he, because he's put his name out there and his comments out there, he has been jumped on. Um, we, we talk about this a lot, how you can end up being shamed. And this certainly does amplify that. It gives people who may not have the best interests of everybody at heart a, a cause to, to jump on and use as a reason to bash him. Um, but at the same time, I thought, it was really important that she, as somebody ranked, I think, 600 in the world, had an opportunity, gave herself a platform to get her point across. And it was seen and it was heard. And I have to say it was a a standpoint that whilst we heard from Sophia Shapatava on, on our What Happens When Tennis Stops interview, we heard something about that. I felt that this did a really good job of getting the point across that not everybody's situation is the same and you can't just judge every player 
with your own experience, your own upbringing. And I think it's, it, it, it served a valuable purpose in, in that way. It was a great conversation starter. What did you think, Catherine? <laughs> Yeah, um, very similar to what you think. I, I mean, I, I understand why people are quite comfortable with the 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 personal attack on on Dominic Team in in the video, um, and how sort of accusatory and and combative combative it is. Um, you know, referencing him so often specifically, but maybe we wouldn't be talking about it. Maybe it wouldn't have created the waves that it has had she not done that because you know his his comments obviously created the ways because of the platform that he has and she doesn't have that so to grab people's attention she's i guess she's she's had to do something um a bit shocking really um and i would also say that she probably felt like dominic team's comments about lower rank players i i suspect that they felt extremely personal to, to her, even though she wasn't named. I suspect that that felt like a personal attack. Um, so kind of a tit-for-tat thing. I think um, whether you agree with the wider point about higher-ranked, uh, wealthier players supporting lower-ranked players, um, that's kind of taken separately, uh, well, I take it separately, to to the, the point she makes about just... A, tennis and the world frankly should be trying to have a greater appreciation of of privilege and the the way the uh the playing field is very very far from level that's what i do think there is something in um what dominic team had to say i think um i can I can sympathise with his point that he he resents the obligation to support lower-ranked players. Um, but I, I think that doesn't necessarily go hand-in-hand hand with his dismissiveness of um, the effort and the opportunity that, uh, that lower-ranked players have and have had. Um, so I think drawing attention to privilege in the sport and in the world is a very very good thing and she makes that point extremely well I think and although I don't think it invalidates everything that Dom Dominic Team had to say and I, I I do feel some sympathy for him that he's become <laughs> the the poster boy um for for not wanting to support lower ranked players um I I maybe he and others have have learned a, a bit of a lesson of 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 privilege and not to not to throw comments around without considering your own experience and how that how that colors your your feelings about things matt what do you think when you, when you heard the comments from dominic when you saw the video what was your response i actually think aside from the fact that it made such good points about about Dominic Team's privilege, I think the most important aspect for tennis is that, as you said, it should be a conversation starter because tennis for a long time has wondered about how many players should be professional, how many players should be making a living, what it even means to be professional. Is it to be playing the sport? Is it to be making a living? Those sorts of existential questions have been around in tennis for a long time. And I actually think Team's comments and... Ibu's video have really brought that conversation 
to the fore. And I think that could be one of the positives that come out of, well, that comes out of our current situation and also these sorts of discussions being had. So I think I, I slightly also took issue with the with the targeting of team and the way team has become, as you said, that kind of symbol of top-ranked players looking dismissively on lower-ranked players. I think it's slightly complicated by the fact that team has a has a brother who is a <laughs> who is a lower-ranked player. Um, but ultimately, I think it's important that these people are allowed to give their views without being attacked on either side. I think team's been attacked. I think Ibu has probably been attacked as well for making that video, and I don't think that's helpful. I think it's. I think they're both really good conversation starters that will actually lead us to to a better place we, we had another question didn't we um in a, in a similar vein inspired by you know the team comments in the ibu video about a sort of guaranteed minimum level income for 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 lower rank players obviously sort of the 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 structure and the details of that would be incredibly complicated but the idea of a, a, I mean, the idea of universal basic income is is very interesting anyway, and uh, being discussed now more and more because of what's going on in the world. But that is quite interesting, isn't it? The idea of UBI in tennis, and it does lead me back to to Liam Brody's comments about about match fixing, and that's kind of the 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 underbelly of this this whole thing that's rarely discussed. The two issues are, are very very related it would it would remove a lot of the the incentive for match fixing and i think go some way to to solve that problem I'd, i'm opening a massive can of worms with the ubi thing but i do find it interesting and i think so often the way that tennis is structured in terms of prize money is labeled as a good thing because ultimately if you if you're able to make it to the top you get what you deserve and all that kind of thing but that does ignore the fact that Ibu is making that it's so much harder to get to the top if you're from if you're from a country that isn't as wealthy as others so a, a basic income would potentially allow those players more of a chance to get on an equal playing field in terms of being able to earn what they deserve for how good they are at tennis just filtering that money down so that when you do achieve at those lower ranked tournaments that you get something more for it that you can build with mm. um there is more incentive than to to achieve at, at that level um but actually just just generally those two questions combined and the answers that we've all come up with point to me towards what this period can do for the world and for tennis generally is just stop us in our tracks for a minute and and have to consider a different way of being because People can't be bothered to think like that otherwise because they don't need to most of the time. And uh, I, I, I'm, there will be a lot of people suffering right now and a lot of people suffering in the future, and, and I feel for them. But I also feel that some good can come from all of this uh, in when we eventually get back to some sort of of normal that we're happy with. I think there could be some improvements as a result of it. If not, then it's 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 an even bigger disaster. So, what else we got? Simon Kevin on Twitter asks if you had the power to change any result in history, one men's and one women's match, which one would you choose? David's going to go for something from the nineties, obviously. <laughs> um, I've got my women's one. 
Somebody else can Far do men's if you want. I would go back and uh, change two of the Grand Slam finals that Margaret Court won. So she doesn't have uh, 24. She's got 22. Serena Williams has already broken a record. And we don't have to talk about Serena Williams breaking Margaret Court's record anymore. And we hopefully don't have to talk about Margaret Court as much as we do anymore. So I would take away probably a couple of her Australian Opens where she only beat Australian players. Um, And that are... Yeah, I, I don't want to do. You know, she was a great, great tennis player. I'm not. I'm not being dismissive of her achievements, but um, I. I think just the the binary use of numbers ig- ignores the fact that um, the achievements aren't equivalent. You know, the Australian Open wasn't what it is now. It didn't require the same greatness to win. Uh, some of those Australian Open titles that are counted among the 24. So I would ditch a couple of those and just end that discussion now. Can I have two men's matches? Yeah. Okay. I I feel a bit bad (laughs) for for this. Um, I'm going to go... Well, I mean, I might have a women's... I'm going to have a women's match as well, but I can't choose between the two men's matches that are out of the two. I was was going to make a flippant comment about uh, sexism there, but given that I've already accused you of mansplaining today, I, I... I I moonwalked away from, from it <laughs> quickly. Also, pick your target <laughs> of all the people. No one's beyond anyway. reproach, David. No, no, all right. Yes, if anyone's sensing any there, tension <laughs> across the airwaves. We nearly didn't get on air today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so I, th- I, I look at this as a massive triumph. Um, right, so I'm having Andy Roddick finally winning a Wimbledon title, and I think we should be giving him uh, 2009... And that's not to say that Federer didn't earn it. Ultimately, he did. He won it 16-14 in the fifth. But to feel that Andy Roddick didn't deserve that or didn't deserve one of those feels harsh to me. That means Federer's on 19, same as Nadal. Yeah. I think he can afford to be on 19 and Roddick to be a Wimbledon champion. Can I make a counterclaim? <laughs> Try. I... I agree I would love Andy Roddick to have a Wimbledon title, but the fact that that was the match, which was the record breaker for the slams, I think was perfect. I think if if Federer hadn't won that, he'd have broken it. If he kept on winning the slams, he did win. He'd have broken it in the 2010 Australian Open final, a straight sets defeat of Andy Murray, a fairly non-memorable match. I think for such a big moment in tennis history the all-time men's slam record being broken, the fact that it was 16-14 in the fifth was kind of perfect. Yeah, he wouldn't have been able to wear that jacket in the Australian Open uh, Exactly. men's And anyway, Andy, final. I mean, you know, I, I know exactly how you feel because I've lost a, a Wimbledon final heartbreakingly as well uh, last year. Uh, said Roger, and uh, <laughs> I wonder where you were going just, with that. Yeah, it's exactly thinking, the same thing. Uh, if you had an out-of-body experience, David. Um, and my my second one is for Tim Henman to have beaten Guillermo Correa. That was mine. That oh, that's a good one. Semi, because and nothing against Guillermo Correa. Fair play, he won the match fair and square. But wouldn't it have been fascinating to see what would have happened? With Tim Henman. Tim Henman in the French Open final against Gaston Gaudet. 
Wouldn't that have been amazing? Would he have won it? Do you think? What do you think? Do you think he'd have won it if he'd have got through? He'd have had a he'd have had a good chance. I mean that that French Open final was so weird, um, in so many ways. Um, he'd have had a really really good chance. Remember that match he played against Chayla that year, and he was just brilliant. I loved seeing Henman at, at the French Open that year. I mean Henman that year 2004 was just a great watch all over wasn't he I think three of the four semi-finals he was yeah that he was well and truly in his pomp but um I loved seeing him do what he did on clay I've always wondered if Tim Henman had won any slam really how different do you think the start of Andy Murray's career would have been in terms of obviously Murray lost what was it three slam finals to begin with do you think that was a internal pressure I mean okay he came up against Federer and Djokovic playing brilliantly in those finals he might not made any difference or do you think the sort of external pressure of being a Brit and carrying all that weight on his shoulders actually did harm him in the in the start of his career I I don't know I mean it's an it's an impossible question but I've often wondered that I think you'd have had a harder time coming up with a logo it's the 77, isn't it? Mm. Yes. I was thinking it was AM. Since. Mm. Is there anything you can do with 10? Or... It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> the argument. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering whether maybe early on in his career, maybe it might have been easier for him. Um, but I don't. But I don't know. I, I think I don't think it would have made much difference. No, really, I think probably not. Murray's just a dog with a bone who just keeps on coming, and he and you you can't change him. I don't think so. I think he would have just probably dealt with it all the same. Um, I was thinking maybe might have given. Did Arantxa Sanchez Vicario ever win Wimbledon? I don't think she did. No. I think maybe she warranted a Wimbledon. What about Lendl winning Wimbledon? Oh, Lendl. Sampras yeah. winning the French. No, he didn't deserve it. As much as I love... <laughs> no, he didn't. I love Sampras. And, and in 96, he beat Courier, Bruguera, two, two of the great former champions to get to the semis. But, you know, and, I've, and he had a tough time that year. I felt for him that year because his coach um, had just died. Um, and he ran out of gas. He lost to Kafelnikov in the semifinals. But he only, he did, and I say only, but he did only get to one semifinal of the French Open in more than a decade of his career. And that's not great, really. Um, you know, Boris Becker did better than that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think he deserved it. I think... Much as I loved him. I think if the if the world ends with Andy Murray not having an Australian Open, that'll be a a weird thing. Which it which I it think it's going probably to. yeah, which it probably will. Um, I mean, in in uh, in terms of the French, I think people like McEnroe deserved it more. He got to that final and he so nearly won in eighty four. Um, I wasn't arguing for Edberg. Sampras. I was. I just thought you might because I know what a big fan of Sampras you are. I thought you might have a bit of. Sentimental Sampras bias. No, just well, doesn't a, deserve there's, it. There's a little bit of residual anger yeah, from, <laughs> from my tell. 90s experience because I was so desperate for him to do it as a as a fan before I started working in tennis, and I felt as though he didn't apply himself enough on clay 
for for a few years i felt he kind of he kind of it, it was a bit of a token effort and uh i mean he may completely disagree with that but that that's how i felt at the time um so you know i i don't i don't really feel like he was unjustly dealt with in the end um yeah, Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. When you look at her head-to-head with Graf, there were so many great matches, so many close matches, and she nearly got over the line once or twice. So I thought maybe she warranted one, but I tend to feel like generally I'd rather go for somebody who wasn't a Grand Slam champion who had had a moment. Um, so you know, maybe, maybe Henman is is why I'm going for him on on the clay. I would go for Venus Williams in the 2017 season. Either. Oh. Either the Wimbledon final or the U.S. Open semi-final against Stevens, which she lost. I thought I think that season deserved a slam. I think it deserved that exclamation point on it. And and if it had one, it would go down as one of the all-time greats, Absolutely. which it still deserves to be considered, but isn't because it doesn't have that. And I think I think Venus gets slightly forgotten about in terms of how great she was we've done a lot of this tennis relive going back in the past and it's been really interesting to look back at the start of venus's career a lot more than i ever had done just to see what a personality she was what a force she was and i think obviously with her syndrome she's she's faded in the second half of of her career she's been massively overtaken in terms of grand slam achievements by serena and i think it's easy to just overlook how great how great she was and is, um, and I think a slam in 2017 would have really brought that back into focus for a lot of people. The U.S. Open a couple of days ago tweeted out um, a short sort of two three minute highlights reel of a match that uh, Venus Williams played against Justine Enan at the 2007 U.S. Open. And I think I probably watched that match at the time. I've got the the vaguest residual memory of it. I was, I'm, my breath was taken by the quality of of the hitting, the depth and power on the shots on 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 both sides. The, I mean, it, it's it's mind blowing tennis, and to see Venus Williams in full flow like that uh, against a great adversary. I'm, I'm already salivating at the prospect of watching that match back. Um, P.S. I would still quite like the US Open to happen. <laughs> well, <laughs> but tell you what, Catherine, assuming it doesn't. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to gonna have it anyway, right? We're going to relive that match anyway, even if it happens, uh, the US Open. We'll have it in the, the run-up. So there we go. There's another extra podcast for us to do. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> we haven't got enough of them. So, uh, you know. Yeah. Oh, great days. We can't, <laughs> oh, we can't change any results. The so past. It's <laughs> all we've got. Right. Next. What else? <laughs> um, we've got through three questions. We've got about 10 minutes left. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking. And I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. R Monk 2 on Twitter. Which players have made the most transformative coaching appointments in terms of their subsequent results, both positive and negative impacts? Well, Ivan Lendl, I think, um, for Andy Murray. Um, you know, the, the the data speaks for itself, doesn't he? He was missing the final 2%. Those He was missing the just the very pointy bits of his fangs. Lendl comes on board and suddenly... He, Twice. He's, yeah, I'm coming to that, David. <laughs> Carry on. <sighs> no, well, you've spoiled it now. Go, You go. No, carry on. Well, no, I mean, the point made. He comes on board twice, wins slams. Done. Over to you. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> I would go for <laughs> Magnus Norman. Um, who not only did it with Robin Soderling, admittedly didn't win a slam, but he got to two slam finals, beat Nadal, uh, which nobody had ever done, and and turned Soderling into the best that he could be, I thought, and then turned Stan Wawrinka into a, a Grand Slam champion, albeit not on his own. I mean, you know, you've got to have the raw materials. But I don't think anybody's sort of shaped and polished raw materials in recent years quite like Magnus Norman has Darren Cahill and Simona Halep probably um deserves a mention I know it's not quite the the linear ascent um you know they had some wobbles and ups and downs but would Halep have have got there without that journey she went on with with Darren Cahill I I don't know um he was certainly a big part of finally making her a Grand Slam champion um and the other one I would say that the the data very much supports is Marion Vider. 
Um, <clears throat> as soon as Djokovic, I mean, I know it's kind of chicken and egg cause and effect, but as soon as Djokovic ditched Marion Vida, suddenly he's going through that really, really fallow period that, that we talked about on the worst of the greats pod and brings him back into his team and all's right with the world again. You know, they are, can't do it without him. I'd also make a, a point for Annabelle Medina Garrigas, who is that, is that, have I said that mm-hmm. correctly? Who, who coached uh, Yelena Ostapenko and she won the French Open and always felt like she was the one who, who got the very best out of her. And Conchita Martinez, who helped um, Garbina Magarutha um, to win Wimbledon. I would make a case for Carlos Moya being a great addition to Rafa Nadal's team. I think, again, we discussed that barren run that Nadal went on on our worst of the big three, 2015, 2016. Then Moya came in and Nadal was kind of regenerated. And I, I think the reason I like that coaching appointment is because Nadal had always been with Uncle Tony and it and it just I don't know why we always call him Uncle Tony it's just not my uncle <laughs> I, I saw um, you flinch a bit as you said it but what else yeah. are you supposed to say if you say Tony everyone would be like Tony who yeah I, I once I once requested an interview to Nadal's PR person could, could I speak to Uncle Tony please <laughs> <laughs> he, goes, he just burst out laughing <laughs> but I just think it showed a willingness there to adapt and not be stubborn and I think that was an incredible an incredible decision because Moya has certainly added well again I suppose it's kind of that cause and effect I think Nadal has become a more complete player in these last two or three years and whether that's down to Moya or not who can say but certainly it has coincided I think he's certainly been more aggressive and that's probably probably Moya deserves a tip of the hat there I think also the one that always interests me is how Angelique Kerber went from kind of a Stan Wawrinka-like career trajectory, really, in terms of great player and then suddenly a Grand Slam champion. I wouldn't necessarily put it completely down to a coaching appointment, but I did. I do know that she got rid of Torben Belt and then went back to him and then had the 2016 season. I think that also shows good judgment. Trying, I'm trying not to say Murray and Lendl, but um, of knowing when to go back, even when even when no one could possibly predict that 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 would happen. Exactly. Mm. What about some of the worst? Uh, oh, Jimmy Connors, Maria Sharapova. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thomas Muster and Dominic Team. <laughs> Thomas Muster and Dominic Team. I mean, Todd Connor Martin. Sharapova lasted one match, didn't it? Yeah. Todd Martin, uh, Novak Djokovic, mm. as as referenced. Juan Carlos Ferrero and oh yeah, Zverev. I think any any coaching partnership that ends in a fight. <laughs> you might you might think good. that these would have been more successful than they were, and you'd have to say Lendl and Zverev. Okay, mm, they yeah. had the ATP Finals win, which I, I guess is the the culmination of his career so far. But for it to not last, it didn't work. Agassi and uh, Djokovic didn't end well, did it? That yeah. ended in a in a bit of a spat. I'd also uh, just on the on the positive side, just point to one that isn't one of these knee jerk make a difference types, but Tony Pickard and Stefan Edberg. He we, we we had an interview with with Stefan Edberg last week, which we'll have for you as well in the in the coming weeks, and he he was with Tony Pickard his whole career, his entire career. But he basically 
coached and fathered him in many ways into a champion when he was a really shy and quiet and uncombative type character and brought out the, the the devil in him so that he could at least compete he was not confrontation at all and tony got the best out of him by gradually working with him and just helping him understand that side of the game and i i find that really interesting as a as a a way of you know the 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 answer these days is oh not going well change the coach mm. well maybe it doesn't have to be like that um, and that's why I quite like the fact that you brought up Marion Vider and um, and Tony Nadal and people like that that have that have just been there all along. Mm. I think Severin Luti would probably be mm. another one. Of the kind of stability in in Federer's camp throughout the years. Couple more questions. Quickies. Okay, uh, let's let's start with the one that we teased at the start then. Um, if you each had entrance music like a boxer coming out for a fight, what song would you choose? This is from Roberto Grammer on Instagram. I am the one and only Chesney Hawk. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I'd have really? to sing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am the, the one and only. It's just factual. There's no other one of me, is there? Okay. Doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> I'd have the succession theme tune. Oh. Why? It's just great, isn't it? It's dramatic. Mm. It's uh it's got some swagger. Um I think it would inspire me. It's it's just it's just uh it's got attitude. <laughs> I'd have Don't Worry, Be Happy. Oh, God. And the Rocky music. What? As a mashup? A mashup. Yeah. Actually, no, I'd have the Liquidator from the Albion. From West Bromwich Albion, they have the Liquidator playing out when when uh, they come out. So I'll have that. Particularly because there's some, some uh, words in it where you tell Wolverhampton Wanderers fans to go away, I say. <laughs> what are you having, Matt? Uh, Badlands. Yeah. I want to go out tonight, find, find out what I got. Feels like an appropriate message. I may win, I may lose, but I'll be out there. And it's punchy and loud. And, and not, not cringe. And not I'll have Chesney Hall. I'll have always look on the bright side of life. Oh, that's, what that, that's the most played song at funerals. Well, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> which seems a bit contradictory <laughs> really to me but anyway um okay what else we got okay we have a question from matt ranter on instagram who says with matchups like serena versus Federer at the hotman cup and serena and murray teaming up at wimbledon as well as more recent discussions of tour mergers do you think more should be done to encourage mixed doubles at tournaments? What do you think this could look like? And then he says the year-end finals always feels a bit anticlimactic in the wider context of the season. Do you think it would be viable to merge the men's and women's events and create a pool of mixed teams from the top eight players? Um, I'd love to see it, that second point. I don't see it ever happening, um, the merging the two end-of-year finals, because... 
they are the each individually for the ATP and WTA the most significant uh, money makers for them. They completely rely on them financially. Um, I know those two events are the main goals at the moment for for the ATP and WTA, just trying to find a way for them to happen. Because if they if they don't, then both organisations will be pretty crippled financially. Um, so unless you can find a way to combine them and and preserve the the profits that they currently generate, um, which maybe that's possible, but but unless that were possible, I don't see that happening, unfortunately, although I would love to see it. Um, mixed doubles at events, yeah, bring it on. Absolutely bring it on. It's, it's a no-brainer. How many times can we say it? Tennis is at its best when it's exploiting its USP. Which is here's one for you. If you could completely rip it up and start again now, given the situation we're in, and say, okay, men and women merging, and you play your individual singles events, but then every tournament has to have doubles, and every tournament has to have mixed doubles, and everybody has to play, and it's a and it's a ranking that reflects that, and those are the rules, and yes less attention will end up being paid to singles and you may not be at your absolute peak for singles anymore because you're having to put so much extra work into it all but a little bit like the Davis Cup and all the and the Fed Cup and the 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 way that's given uh, some significance to doubles that you have to play it and therefore it becomes important and relevant you did that at grand slams would you do it if you had the chance? Of course, but that doesn't mean it would necessarily work as intended. I mean, look at the the, the blue clay and and the power that that Djokovic and Nadal ended up wielding on 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 that concept and oh, getting and, rid of it. You know, problems. if they if, if and you might end up with a lot of tanked matches if players are forced to. To play sort of. I'm just thinking if you had will. a commissioner of tennis and you had one person who made the rules and they came in and said, "No, this is what tennis is now," and those top players had signed on the dotted line to say, "Yes, this is the commissioner of tennis that we want," and that person, and we're going to elect them, and therefore we will back their judgment, and this is what they want. Would you be in favour of it? Do you think it would be worth it? Mandatory doubles and mixed doubles for yeah. every player at every event. I, I think, or a, or a se- selected number of events that can contribute to your ranking or whatever. I'm saying no. I think the point of a merger shouldn't be more mixed doubles. I love mixed doubles. I want more mixed doubles. But the point of a merger should be more power in the market generally, equality across the board, and tennis should be about men and women sharing the same stage not necessarily sharing the same court all the time i think i like mixed doubles i think it has a place i'd like to see more of it but i think it's i think tennis should still be an individual sport primarily and i think it should be based why? mainly doubles on your is brilliant. we love doubles why 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 do you want yeah, it to, to be sidelined i'm not but why do you want doubles to be sidelined why why is single sidelined in any way because of doubles gaining more prominence well it just would be as you were saying it would be a combined ranking so that would knock singles i think i think singles personally you know it's just my opinion i think it is not necessarily like the higher form of the game but it's the form of the game that i think 
is more interesting year round. I think I prefer to follow a singles player year round. It, it's a it's a greater test of what makes tennis tennis. I think that individual duel out on the court between two people, um, and I think doubles has a big part to play in tennis. But, but but I like the current system of some people playing doubles, some people playing singles, and I like having events like team events which push doubles more. But I think ultimately singles should be the priority and getting men's and women's singles on the on an equal footing all around would be the would be the biggest benefit of a merger, I think. What do you think, Catherine? I think incentivizing players to play more doubles, yes. I don't think that's any any bad thing. I think doubles is in a sticky spot at the moment, and I'd I'd like to see it in a in a in a better place. Um, but I think man, mandatory doubles and mixed doubles. I'm not sure that's the way to go. Um, and it, and if it were then then only at a you know say five events throughout the year or whatever um but i don't think sort of mandatory at the majority of events is necessarily the thing but but recognizing that there's there's a a, a place for it i don't think sort of as matt says trying to engineer it to be on a a level footing is necessarily the way forward, but recognizing the place for it and trying to to make the best of that place. I just feel like is, we've been is a good thing for so many have years. Have we? Who's? How nowhere. have people been trying trying well, to? When do I was that? at the ATP, the AT, and this is twenty years ago, the ATP hired doubles pr- uh, manager and promoter with the with the 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 sole objective of making doubles more popular. We've seen lots of marketing uh, attempts and players playing clinics and that sort of things, offering up their time. And, and I respect them for it. They're, they've made made some efforts. And you you often see when, oh, somebody needs to be doing the, the autograph signings, let's send the doubles players. Let's send them to do those interviews so that we don't have to ask the, sing- the singles players. I understand all that. I just would love to see the day like when Martin and Avratilova was world number one and John McEnroe was world number one and they played doubles and they valued doubles and it was just as big a deal to them as the singles and it was up in lights that much more as a result of it. I would love to see those days return. Now, I just don't think unless you make systematic change, unless you actually do something about it, it's not going to happen because it's not in the public eye. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are, two, there are two situations in which doubles becomes really relevant and of interest and those are when top names play and in team competitions where you have to play it and that's the that's what i'm arguing for now i i accept maybe it's at a certain number of events but uh, i would love to see it um just yeah but, i mean they don't front they, they don't have, have to play it in team competitions do. If they want to, if they want their team to win, Andy Murray plays in the in the doubles, doesn't he? When push comes to shove, when it becomes really important, win the tie or don't win the tie, he gets picked over Johnny Murray. He got picked over Dominglot. It was him and Jamie Murray. Unless he's got a, a mysterious injury slash put on some kilos. <laughs> but you know that that's, that's the point. Is that doubles is part of the end result of that competition and therefore Andy Murray couldn't afford not to play 
Yeah, so I would rather see more competitions like that. There are other examples where, you know, you'd play Eber Mau over the two top-ranked singles players. There are counterexamples sure. to that. No, I, I, I agree with you. But I feel like if you if you don't have any actual reason for the top players to play, I mean, money's not going to do it. They're, they're loaded. Um, just for the good of the doubles game, that ain't going to do it. I don't see what encouragement there can possibly be other than making them and having a reason, a real reason for it as part of the competition. I just think those days of playing as many singles and doubles matches as the likes of Makamo and Navratilova did, I, I mean, they're just not going to come back. It's, it's, it's just not... They could if you wanted them to. <laughs> <laughs> could. If you decided that tennis would no, be but, better with that, but I think, but I think the, the point is that the top players would say no, and then it's just it's just a non-starter. David is very much of the where there's a will, there's a way mentality. If you get, I mean, look look at the situation we're in right now. Who would have thought that tennis wouldn't exist for six months? And that's the situation. Who so, would have thought Wimbledon so wouldn't get played? So therefore, anything is possible. There's no point in debating it or having ha- an opinion. Ha- you can have an opinion on whether you want to do it or not. And I'm sure that what I'm saying is if tennis decide, if enough people decided we, we need to have faith in a commissioner, the way that basketball and NFL do, for instance, so that when there's a really good idea, it doesn't get held up by what might be suitable for the top players. We heard Yanka Tipsarich talking about blue clay. Once the top players decided that was the end of it. Well, maybe that wasn't for the best of the game. That was the, for for the good of sure, Nadal but but now Djokovic. you're talking about the restructuring of all of all of te- you're talking about a world in which the whole of tennis has been restructured, which is kind of yeah. a different different debate. But, but that's but why why are you why would we say oh yeah, but that will never happen, so therefore don't want that to happen. Maybe because you I, don't want that to happen, but because I don't I, I don't see why why we would limit ourselves if we're saying. Tennis, as, as we know, it has just ended. But why? I, I think that's overly be... optimistic. And why did it stop happening? Well, m- m- I mean, a variety of reasons. I think money in singles. Um, uh, yeah, a, f- a few stop and they start winning Grand Slam singles titles. Bjorn Borg didn't play. And eventually, I think players end up deciding, well, actually, I, I don't want to play doubles because I need to save my energy. But if everybody was doing it, you're all in the same boat. But would we be looking then at players having shorter careers because they're playing more doubles than they are singles? They, it, all these things would be a trade-off. And I think the the sort of current system where singles is the priority for the best players, personally, I think that's the best one. And I think I like the way doubles is elevated at certain events, but I I wouldn't want to see doubles elevated to sacrifice the way like the strong position that singles is in currently if federer deployed more of his canister on doubles throughout his career he might already be retired now and we'd be missing out on years of federer Uh, we don't we don't know but matt's right there are trade-offs that when you hear martina and john mckinnon talk they say they preferred playing doubles than practicing Mm. and they used doubles as a way to just keep their eye in Mm. Well, he messes around in practice a lot, and he loves, you know. The sport is a lot more physical and technical now. There's a lot more that goes into practicing, you know, gym work and. And before this period we're in now, most people were saying we need 
less tennis. Like I think th- this is like the sort of karmic result of those <laughs> conversations, and I won't be having them again. But I'd- perhaps if you had doubles, you would have a different type of tennis. You would have more understanding of touch maybe matches would be less grueling maybe but i'm not sure that's just about less. doubles and that's about court surface and all string technology and would you sacrifice best of five at slams david for your doubles plan i'd consider it wow really i'd consider it wow um, i'd consider it the thing is i feel having had time to not have the everyday of tennis where you feel as though you are straight jacketed into this is how it is work within that structure i feel like why not why not i reimagine the game right now maybe we're going to have to reimagine lots of things within the game so why not throw this into the mix just to see whether that's something that should be brought in for the greater good of it long term we're just so used to what it has always been and yes it has provided some wonderful stuff but we have lost doubles in in terms of its profile the fact that we were covering the wta finals for years on bt sport and only covering the singles bothers me and i I loved working for bt sport but that bothered me and i feel like that part of and, and that's look obviously that's on them to to a large degree but it's also on the sport making if you know if, if the top players were playing it'd be covered but as much as we're i mean I, there are lots of what there's lots of what you're saying that i really agree with but are we glorifying a bit what doubles was in the past no doubt it was bigger and more elevated and there was more attention on, on it because the top top players played but Okay, so how how many matches have we relived and put on our list to relive over the next coming weeks? So we've got 15, 15 matches at the French, 14 at Wimbledon, 13 at Wimbledon. Uh, we've done Miami, Madrid. We're doing Rome this weekend. No one's even mentioned doing a, a, doubles, a doubles match no, from the, but, but I think the 80s the, or whatever. If, if we were to do Davis Cup, I dare say doubles would feature pretty prominently. Yeah, but that's what, that's, I think, that's what, what we're Davis saying. That's, that's no, its place. But, but I'm saying why limit yourself to just Davis Cup? Why not make it a bigger thing? Because when you look at those Davis Cup ties, that's the bit that's the best a lot of the time. So why would you not make more of it? Because you can't, that's like saying, why not have a Grand Slam every week? So that because it needs, it's elevated because of the shortness of supply. The status quo isn't the status quo because necessarily it is how it is at its best. It's kind of how it's ended up falling. But I also think when you've, when I've been to Davis and Fed Cup rubbers, the whole atmosphere of Davis and Fed Cup suits doubles it's it's a staccato rhythm and there's a way that fans support at those events where they will cheer even after like a really boring point and that will that will elevate the match itself i think doubles takes on an extra extra significance at davis and fed cup because of the way the crowds are personally i think that that's been my experience of being in the stadium and i just don't oh, think well, you can compare cr- cr- crowds aren't a thing anymore matt <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you can compare davis cup to tour tennis okay, well you could compare winning singles gold versus doubles gold at the olympics couldn't you and i don't think your singles gold means any more to the individual than your doubles gold oh I'm wow sure i think that's a that. really big sweeping statement i i genuinely believe that 
I think I think I think but again, um, okay, but again, you can't compare. No, I don't gold, think that's winning true. Winning a gold David. medal compared to winning on the tour—that that is different. I I I don't think that's true, David. Whenever people say to Federer, "You you've never won gold at the Olympics," he says, "I have." Yeah, of course, and you'd expect and him to be I, chippy about people. That's not the same as. Come on, that's not the same. It'd be interesting to ask a player who's won both. Let's get Nicholas Masu on. He's done both, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah. You know, let's find out. I mean, I, 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 Serena's I may done be, both. I may be wrong. I may Venus. be wrong, but that, my sense is that at the Olympics, a gold medal is a gold medal. Um, and the, I, th- I don't feel that tennis makes enough of doubles anywhere close. But, but that is also on us. Like, you know, we are we're working at slams and if we wanted to cover doubles more we could but we don't why don't we because we prefer well, part, singles part of it right? is because it's just shunted to the sidelines well, and it's it we're, to, we're told it doesn't mean as much because look at the prize money look at the court assignments look at the tv coverage you know if tennis decided doubles was 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 important uh, and really showed that by the weight that it puts behind it. Then okay, well then the ATP finals when you've change. got the sessions with both. You know, we've been at the ATP finals covering that event, and you know maybe maybe this is kind of shame on us, but we've been having lunch during the doubles and watching the singles. And, and I totally hold my hand up to that, but I would also say that if the rankings were combined and if all players had to play both disciplines um you would get players in that doubles the same way as you would in the singles that played both and therefore everybody's singing from the same sheet then they're all saying that doubles is a big deal at the moment it's it's an afterthought and and it's reflected in the way we cover it and i i admit to being part of the problem I just wonder whether maybe there's a there's a the whole thing should be reimagined. Let us know what you think <laughs> <laughs> at Tennis Podcast. Um, yeah, it's an interesting I, discussion. Yeah, I I'm mean, up. I'm up for reimagining and for there being a commissioner. Sure. And a lot of what you say, I just I just think you're you're reimagining a, a lot. <laughs> I think I just That's think you're going a bit far. I think we're sort of on the same page up to a point. Um. But you're just imagining a sort of doubles utopia. Right. So there we are. Another questions and answers session done and dusted. We got through it. Uh, and <laughs> not, not unscathed, <laughs> but we got through. Not Might not be speaking no. again for a while. <laughs> Might have to have a bit of time to ourselves for a bit. <laughs> um, have we got any shout outs, Matt? Yes, we do. Um, to Jay Jayana. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, to Jay. Chris Loomis. Cheers, Chris. Mm, thanks, Chris. Hey. And to Paula Rory. Oh, oh. Paula. Hey, Paula. All of those three people are back to the tennis podcast. And that means the, the, the cumulative, not just the one that they happen to be on the side of whenever we get rowing. Uh, so isn't there a, thank you. Isn't there a song called Hey, Paula? Uh, hey, that I don't hey, know. Paula. That David probably wants it as his entrance music. <laughs> if you can get a version with David, I've thought there. of another um, song to play at change events with no crowds. I think we're alone now. 
<laughs> She's flying. Yeah. She's flying, Catherine Whittaker. Found something uh, so to do with my day. Hooray. Thank you to all three of you and everybody else who backed the tennis podcast at the end of last year when you thought you were going to have weeklies throughout the year and dailies at every Grand Slam. And you're getting that. Plus, you're getting twice weeklies. Um, it's just that we haven't got any like real tennis to talk about that's happening now. Uh, so we're, we're, we're doing different things. We're reliving tennis. We're reimagining tennis. We're talking about the rules. Um, and we're going to be daily throughout Roland Garros, the original dates, and Wimbledon. We've already done loads of interviews to talk to players who were significant in all the matches that we are going to be covering. We'll, we'll release all of those to you in the next week or so, so you, can, you know what's coming up. Um, but we've had the best time, really, talking to some great names from the past, great coaches from the, for, of those players uh, from those points in time, watching old matches. It's really been fun, and we're going to do the same again on Monday, where we relive two great moments from Rome because that's what would have been happening right this week. We're going to go back to the early 90s when Gabriella Sabatini was absolutely dominant in Rome. She won four titles in five years, including beating Monica Seles, peak Monica Seles, two years in succession. I was watching all of those matches at about six in the morning today, uh, and that was great. Uh, And we're going to go back to 2006, which probably, Catherine and Matt, I think if... If 2008 Wimbledon final hadn't happened, we'd probably be talking about that as one of the greatest matches of all time, wouldn't we? And we're going to be covering Federer, Nadal, Rome, 2006. Mm. There was aggro in it, which is one thing the 08 Wimbledon final didn't have. Yes, if I'm remembering right, Federer accused Uncle Tony of doing some Moritoglu-style courtside coaching. Oh, brilliant. You know, I never watched this match. I never got a chance to really? see it. So, oh, you're in no, for a I, I mean, this, treat, David. This is going to be my first experience. So we're going to watch it this weekend. Um, so if you can get a chance to watch it yourselves, it'll be on Tennis TV. Um, I'm sure it's out there somewhere else you as well. You should say that you might need to plan your whole weekend around <laughs> it because it is about five hours. Yeah, I'm going to be setting my alarm clock for four uh, to, to, to get enough time to watch <laughs> it. Um, and you'll be uh, on your yeah, own. Gab- <laughs> Gabriella Sabatini, nineteen ninety two is the year that uh, that we're focusing on. But I mean, we'll be talking about her whole career at the Italian Open in particular because she had such success there and and never actually managed to win the French Open, although she had great results there. But um, yeah, lots to get our teeth into over the next weeks and months to come. Thank you, Catherine and Matt. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Review us on iTunes if you've enjoyed the show and if you've enjoyed our other editions. It all helps to tell people uh, about us and hopefully get more people listening along. Uh, We have our Reddit page, which you can get involved in and chat with fellow listeners and tennis fans. which is a you can access via our uh, show notes we've got our newsletter which will be going out in a couple of days time and will include matt's weekly stat and our isolation diaries where we'll tell you what we've been doing with our time aside from talking to you a lot on the podcast and uh, uh yeah get yourself on the newsletter show notes again to to click on and uh, and sign up that's free uh and just tell everybody no if you wouldn't mind about the tennis podcast so we get as many listeners as we can that can witness Catherine and me arguing. See you next week. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.